Let's take our hymn, or um, song, let's take our Bibles. <laughs> take whatever you want, but I'm going to take my Bible. And uh, I'm going to turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 40. That'll be where we'll look at in just a few moments. Isaiah chapter 40. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries, a uh, ministry started by R.C. Sproul, and, and Lifeway Research, uh, the research group of Southern Baptists, uh, do a survey of Americans to find out what they believe about certain theological issues, uh, about God, about salvation, about ethics, about the Bible. The, shockings are always fine, uh, uh, the findings are always shocking, and more so because uh, as time goes on, the, the understanding of Americans about biblical things uh, decreases about every, at every survey. We're, we're deteriorating, and we're deteriorating rather rapidly in that regard. Uh, and the most concerning aspect of these surveys has to do with the fact that there's also a subset of the survey having to do with evangelical Christians and their deterioration doctrinally as well. Now before we look at that a little closer, we have to define the word evangelical. Uh, what is an evangelical? And I think I'd get a lot of different definitions if uh, we were able to do that. And nobody really seems to know what an evangelical is anymore. Seems like anybody who wants to name themselves an evangelical is one. But that, uh, that shouldn't be the case. Back a hundred or so years ago, uh, the term evangelical re defined a group of people that were the most uh, biblically centered uh, Christians, most dedicated Christians of the time. They were also called fundamentalists at that time. Uh, evangelical and fundamentalists were interchangeable terms. Uh, that changed over, over time, but these were people that held fast to the most basic, most important doctrines of the faith in a pol opposition to the liberals of the day who were quickly abandoning all those things. But the term evangelical took on a new uh, connotation back in the 1940s and 50s, and uh, when a group of uh, evangelicals decided they'd rather, they wanted to broaden their base, uh, widen their theological uh, doctrinal statements and, and denominational groupings and broaden things. And so that group became known as neo-evangelicals. And they, uh, they had a little different direction than evangelicals themselves. So neo-evangelicals and fundamentalists kind of split at that point in time. But that brings us back then to where we are today. When nobody talks about neo-evangelical, you, you won't find that anywhere today. But they, we still talk about evangelicals and we still don't know what it means. Uh, it's a fuzzy term for most people. And so the theologians, the, the writers and the theologians, they fall back on a, a definition given by church historian by the name of David Bebbington. He went back into the 1800s, began to analyze what an evangelical was then and now. And he came away with the idea that an evangelical had to believe in at least four basic essentials of the faith, four things. And that's the terminology, that's the, that's a, the definition given largely today when, uh, well, at least when theologians are talking about what an evangelical is. Now, place yourself in the category here as I go through this as to where you are on the evangelical perspective or spectrum. And there are four things that all evangelicals are to believe. Number one, that the Bible is the Word of God and is the standard for Christian doctrine and living. So in each of these, as I mentioned, then there's so much more to be said, so much more detail that should be there, but these are the essence, these are the, the minimalistic doctrinal beliefs of evangelicals. They believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that uh, it is, should be our standard for living and doctrine. Secondly, they believe in the cross. 
that Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for our sins, that without that sacrifice of Christ for us, no one could ever be saved. And so that's the basic belief of evangelicals. Thirdly, conversion. That there has to come a point in the life of an individual when by, by faith and repentance they turn from their sins and their own uh, trust in self and they turn to Jesus Christ who died for them on Cal at Calvary. They turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, for new life, for, uh, for being born again in Him. And they do that on the basis not of what they have uh, done not on the basis of what they are, but on the basis of what Christ has done for them. And so all evangelicals are to believe in this conversion experience, this personal point in time when you come to Christ. And then finally there is activism, which means that because we believe in the first three things, uh, we, we believe this is the good news that we need to tell other people. And so the job of the evangelical is to let other people know that Jesus Christ died for their sins, and is calling them to salvation through Christ alone. So those are the four basic tenets of evangelicalism. They're minimalistic. There's so much more that, that you and I as Christians should believe and must believe. Uh, and there's so many details even in, in those four parts. But this is the, the very minimalistic uh, doctrinal views of evangelicals. So that's an evangelical. So keep that in mind. All surveys, when they're doing a survey uh, of evangelicals, that's their basis of how they know or how they determine who an evangelical is. Those four uh, essentials. Now having said that, uh, only 7% of Americans identify as evangelicals. Just 7%. So that means 93% of evangelicals, do, or of Americans, would not be identified as evangelicals. 50%, uh, strangely enough, of Americans claim to be born again. Think of that disconnect that's there. 50%, half of Americans, if you would ask them in the right way, if they're born again, they would say, yes, they're born again. They're going to go to heaven when they die, and so forth and so on. But only 7% of Americans, that's a 43% difference, even believe in the four basic tenets that I just gave you, the minimalistic doctrines of the faith that are essential. That means that somewhere between 7 and 50% is a great group of people, a large group of people who think they're saved and most of them are not. Does that ever break your heart? That, that, that bothers me all the time as I think about the vast number of people who truly think that if they dropped dead this morning they would go to heaven and they will not because they don't even know what the gospel is. And that's heartbreaking and that's disturbing. As, a, as this survey went out, however, of the most conservative, dedicated Christian, Bible-believing Christians in America, the 7%, here's what some of the doctrinal findings they had. And I'm going to give you more as the weeks go by. But uh, they found that 50% of those evangelicals believe that God changes and therefore is not immutable. The, the biblical terminology for God not changing is immutable. They believe that God changes with time, with reactions, He's adaptable. 50% of evangelicals believe that. That is, by the way, before we're done today, I trust you'll understand if you don't already, that is not the God we serve. Secondly, two-thirds believe people are born into a state of innocence. They're not born sinners or born innocent. That totally undermines everything that has to do with the gospel that tells us we're born dead in our sins. 
evangelicals, two-thirds. One-third believe do not see the importance of church membership. We'll get to that one in a few weeks from now. Over one-half believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. <laughs> if you're a good Buddhist, you're saved. If you're a good Hindu, you're saved. Two, that that one-half of all evangelicals believe that, which means they don't understand the gospel. And one-fourth do not believe that the Bible is literally true. In other words, many evangelicals are either, either resistant, rejectors of biblical truth, or they're ignorant of biblical truth. And I want to put the most positive spin I can on this and say that most of these evangelicals are not resisting or saying, I, I don't believe. I think most don't know. And the reason they don't know is before, for the last 75 years, the church has, has, has systematically stopped teaching the Bible and gone to entertainment and, uh, and whatever else, other programs or whatever else we want to do. Doctrine doesn't sell, folks. People don't come to church to hear the Bible. They don't come to church to hear the uh, doctrines. They come to church for all sorts of other reasons. But because of that, the, the evangelical church in America is absolutely ignorant of the most basic things of Christianity. And that's heartbreaking. So as I was thinking about that and read the latest survey that comes out every two years, I thought, you know, maybe I ought to do a series, just a short series, 10 10-week series on what every Christian must know about blank. What every Christian must know. Now, I'm assuming that most of you are more on page than these surveys would have. I hope so. I sure hope so. I hope I'm not that deluded. But um, I'm going to go through these things anyway because it's always a reminder for all of us. And I don't know where a lot of you are. I don't know how many of you are totally uh, unaware, unknowledgeable of some of these things. But I'm not going to talk about uh, the details that I often talk about when I preach through a book, which we'll be doing again soon. I'm going to be looking at big pictures. These are not things that you could know and should know and must, you know, so these are the things you must, absolutely must know to truly be a child of God. And so let's look at these together today. We're going to start with the first one by looking at what every Christian must know about God. That's fundamental, right? What every Christian must know about God. And again, we could spend, actually we could spend years on this subject. Seminary, in seminary, you might have three full semesters of the doctrine of God at times. There's tens of thousands of books on the subject. So what, how, what am I going to do? I'm going to give you three essentials that every Christian must know. Number one, these are big pictures. God exists and he reigns supreme. God exists and he reigns supreme. Isaiah chapter 40, in one of the greatest sections about God in the Bible, we'll jump in on verse 6. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer 
of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Modern Christians often are content to repeat superficial slogans about God and attribute uh, his attributes and his blessings and so forth. A lot of our modern Christian music is, has been a, a, a criticized as being a, 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 you know, a mile wide and an inch deep where, they, where we take a phrase and say it over and over and over and over again. That is not the pattern of Scripture. The pattern of Scripture is not to take a thing such as God is great and God is good type of thing, but it, it, it will state that, but then it gives us all the reasons of why and how he is great and good. And that's exactly what's happening in the book of, I, uh, of Isaiah, chapters 40 and through 48 in particular. So Isaiah has a message to proclaim. The people of Israel are, are struggling. He has a message to proclaim. And that message is, is said very succinctly in verse 9. Here is your God. Here is your God. The people of Israel had lost contact with their God and that was their problem matter of fact if you pop on over to uh, verse 27 here's what they were saying about the God they believed in they said why do you say O Jacob and assert O Israel my way is hidden from the Lord and the, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God you know what they're saying there is that God doesn't pay attention to me and if he does pay attention to me, he doesn't care. Why, if God really cared for me, why is he letting me go through this? Why is he letting our nation be in captivity? Why are we struggling so mightily? God doesn't even know what we're doing. And if he does, he doesn't care, which is even worse. That was the essential essence of the problem. They had a problem with God. And I want to suggest to you that most of our problems, if not every single one of them, goes back to our view of God and our understanding with God about God because we miss this fundamental piece every neurosis every fear every anxiety every heartache that we are not handling properly goes is, is ours because we do not know this God and who he really is it always goes back to God he answers by the way in this passage of verse 28 this wonderful passage is probably one of the most beloved in all scripture. If you're not familiar with this, spend some time with it soon. It says, do, not, do you not know, these people that are complaining about God, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. And not only that, but he gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might he increases power though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength they will mount up with wings like eagles they will run and not get tired they'll walk and not become weary what a statement of scripture that's so very few Christians experience on a regular basis as we live this tired and weary and, and troubled lives often because we're not zeroing in on the very essence of what this chapter is talking about. These people were miserable because they had a wrong view of God. And God says, wait a minute, I don't get tired. I don't get weary. 
I never, I never get anxious. You come to me and I'll give you strength. I'll give you power. I'll give you, I'll give you what you need to overcome your weariness. But only on my terms. Not on anybody else's terms. But he ends up this great, great chapter by saying that. But he does it because he has a background he's already filled in earlier in the chapter about who God is. So he's showing the superiority of God in, in the end of the chapter, but now we're going to back up to verse 12 and begin to identify why and how he is superior. How is it that God is superior? Why would he even say that? Is it really true? What's the content? And so we go back to a number of areas of his superiority. Remember, we're believing that God reigns and that God is superior, supreme over all things. Number one, he's a creator. We see that in his creation. In verse 12, it says, who has, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and, and the hills in a pair of scales? One of the most consistent evidences of, of God's greatness found throughout Scripture is in what he's created. All the things that he's created. It, it, as we look at these things, it blows us away to think of the power of the one who created all these things. Someone has said, lacking any evidence, any other evidence, the human eye would be enough to convince me there is a God. Have you ever sat in a doctor's office when they had a chart of the human eye on the wall? I did that one time. Of course, the doctor took 12 hours to come back in, so I, I pretty much had an MD in eyeballs before I got, saw the doctor. So I just kept looking and looking and looking. The human eye is one complicated thing. You know that? Do you realize how many, how many, I don't know what they are, moving parts, lack of moving parts, pieces, I don't know, just tons of stuff and so many ways to go wrong. One little thing and we've got a problem. What a thing. And if, you ever, if anybody would walk out of a room like that having watched a human eye chart for a long time and walked out of the room and said, my what a wonderful thing chance brought about. Over a billions of years, by chance alone, this complicated eyeball exists. Thank you, universe. I have to say the only reason why anybody would ever say that is they already want to believe it. Because the eye shows us the superiority of the creator of the universe because only he could have done this. That's just one thing. Just one thing. The marvels of creation reveal the marvels of our creator. He's superior. Secondly, knowledge. Verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who has his counselor or, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? This passage is kind of dripping in sarcasm. Because he's saying, who, who has ever aided God in his knowledge? Who has ever informed him? Who's, who has he ever consulted with? Who schooled him on the subjects of, of justice and knowledge and understanding? No one. And there's kind of a dig here at the, the Babylonian mythology. In the mythology of the Babylonians, they had a god by the name of Markuk, who is the creator god. He created things. But he couldn't create anything unless he first got approval and insights from the, the all-wise god, Ea. And so, Markuk couldn't do it without Ea. And so God says, I didn't consult with Markuk or Ea or anybody else. 
Who's my counselor? Who consults with me? I'm not like those mythological deities. His knowledge is supreme. And then the nations. He has, he's supreme over the nations. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. The greatest nations and their achievements are nothing before God, both in the past and today. And today. They're a drop in the bucket, a speck of dust on the scales. And this is great news when uh, nations start rattling their swords or floating their balloons. Uh, that God is in absolute control of these things. He is not intimidated by these things. They are a mere drop in the bucket to him. But convince, try to convince some nation that just conquered the world that they're not much. Babylonia just conquered the world, basically, including Israel. They have a 100,000 man standing army or more, and nobody's beaten them. They're invincible. Babylonia is invincible, Right? Alexander the Great, a few hundred years later, thought he was invincible too. Matter of fact, if little Alexander was about eight years old and he was asked to write down, Alexander, when you, work, when you grow up, what do you want to be? Well, Alexander wouldn't set a state worker. <laughs> Alexander said, first of all, I want to be a great warrior. Secondly, I want to conquer the world, nothing big. I want to conquer the world. And then I want to be a god. By, before he was 30 years old, Alexander had become a great warrior. Alexander had conquered the world and now he said the only thing left on his list was to be God. And so he, he de- determined to be deified and worshipped as a God. But before Alexander hit his 30th birthday, he was dead. He died, of many believe, of alcohol poisoning. Some believe the history, the rumors gone down throughout history, that his mentor Aristotle poisoned him because he was destroying the world with his craziness. At any rate, he is dead, and he's gone, and he's in the history books, but he's a speck of the dust in the hands and the minds of God. Any effort we have to worship God is far below his, his value, his, his superiority, his worth. The, 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 all the wooden Lebanon, that was the place where the greatest, junk, the greatest wood supply of the area was. If you took every tree down and burn them all for sacrifices, if you took every beast in the world and sacrificed them, they would be of little value before God. It would only be a beginning to understand in His greatness. And then a fifth area of superiority is over the, the gods themselves, the idols. Chapter 40, verse 18, To whom are you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? For the idols, for, as for an idol, a, a craftsman cast it, a goldsmith placed it with gold. The silversmith fashioned chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. And he seeks out for himself a skilled craftsman and prepares an idol that will not totter. These gods that these people worshipped, you know, they're looking for something that, some piece of wood that didn't rot and wouldn't fall over in the wind. Compare that to Almighty God. As that great theologian, the Hulk, once said, puny gods and then there's the rulers chapter 40 verse 21 do you not know have you not heard have you not been has it not been declared to you from the beginning have you not understood from the foundations of the earth he who sets upon above the circle of the earth 
and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in it. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. There are, not only are there idols of no consequence, but neither are there rulers. They're like grasshoppers before God. From our perspective, the powerful forces, the powerful rulers of our world are mighty people doing mighty things, some awful things. But before God, they're like grasshoppers. They will wither away. God will blow on them and they'll be gone into the dustbin of history. In summary, verses 25 and 26 uh, the question again is asked, to whom will you liken me? That I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these, thing, these stars. The one who, who leads forth their host by number, he calls them by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. No. Who will you liken God to? That's his question. Who will you liken me to? Oh, not to creation not to, to the wise, not to the great nations, not to the powerful, not to the so-called gods. To him all these things are like insects. The scriptures don't bother even to elevate, to ever elevate the ego of man. It is the Holy One who's lifted up. He is the one who's supreme. He is the one who's to be magnified. It is he who is great. It is this that Israel had missed. It is this I contend that most Christians have missed, that all Americans who do not know Christ, or all people that do not know Christ, have missed. They live as if God does not exist. They live as if somehow they could challenge God and be supreme over God. They have no, no understanding of His wonder and His greatness. What we desperately need, my friends, is to capture every day the magnitude and the greatness of God. Every day. And every time we come together as a church, we come together corporately as God's people to worship and be saturated by the glory of God so that when we walk out, we don't say that was a nice service or it was fun to, to be together or we enjoyed the music, but we walk out in our hearts saying, what a God. What a God. This passage of scripture about God should leave us gasping in the wonder of him. So that's the first thing we need to know, that the Lord exists, he reigns supreme. I want us to go back to the book of Psalm, Psalm 19, and look at the second thing. And that is that God has made himself known. It's one thing that God is great, God is magnificent, God is supreme, all that's that's foundational. But it's another thing to know him. What good would it be if we didn't know him? And so we turn to Psalm 19. Most Christians, uh, I think, or too many Christians, I'm afraid, believe that if God exists, and they believe he exists, uh, but he's hiding out somewhere. He has really no impact on their daily life. It, doesn't, it wouldn't really matter if he, he was alive or not as far as our daily life is concerned. That's too easy for it to happen 
in our lives. We don't see him physically. We don't hear him audibly. Uh, we, how, do we do, how do we get to know anything about him? How can we really know anything about this God we're talking about? Well, the ancient people asked the same question, and the scriptures gave them, gave them three different means by which we can know God. Number one, we know God through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. God reveals Himself most fully in Jesus Christ, and that's going to be part of our subject next week. Secondly, God reveals Himself in nature. That's the first six verses of this chapter of Psalm 19. And then God reveals Himself in Scripture. We'll look at that, verses 7 to 14 briefly. That's what that tackles. The first six verses talk about the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit inspired psalmist, tells us that, and reminds us that creation communicates that God exists and that He is glorious. Verse 1 and 2, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanses declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. As David speaks to us through the inspiring of the Holy Spirit, He's, he is not arguing for the existence of God. You, you'll look almost in vain in all of Scripture for the Scriptures to try to give you a, a polemic and a, apologetic on the existence of God. God doesn't need that. God, that's, that's obvious to all people at all times, according to Romans chapter 1 and this passage. You know God exists. It's in your heart. It's there. He, the Scriptures don't argue for that. Here's what this passage is arguing for. He says, nature declares God in His glory. Nature preaches a sermon to us day in and day out. Nature proclaims, nature declares who He is, the, the, the greatness of God. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. What does it mean, glory? The word glory itself originally meant heavy. And so it's speaking of the gravity of something, the importance of something. It is to treat, in God's case, with honor because of, his, of the importance of himself, the gravity of himself, because he is so great. Alan Ross, in his marvelous commentary on this book, on, on, on the Psalms, said, When the Bible uses the word glory or glorious with reference to the Lord, it's basically saying that he is the most important our preeminent person in existence. That's what the heavens declare. That our Lord is the most important, preeminent person in the universe. He is not like anyone else. The created universe reveals the indescribable importance and preeminence of God. And if we thought back to Isaiah, we won't turn there, but in Isaiah 46.5, he, he writes, To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike. Who do you compare God to? Who is, who is it possible to compare God with or to? John Piper said something I thought was a good observation. He said, no one goes to the Grand Canyon in order to increase self-esteem. That's a pretty good comment. If ever any, you go into Grand Canyon or something similar to that, and you look down into the wonders of, that God has made, and you walk away and say, Wow, am I awesome. Wow, I, I am something special. Just look at me. I don't know where you've been, man. 
Nobody looks into the Grand Canyon or such beautiful places and come away thinking how wonderful they are. If you have half a brain, you come away looking, saying, Wow, who created this? How could it be? Our breath is taken away with the splendor of God. You know what our problem is? Psalm 50, 21 says it this way. Here's, here it is, a great verse, 50, 21. You thought I was just like you. I, I think that's our great problem in much of our world today and even in much of Christianity. We think God is just like us. And he is nothing like us. But as long as we think he is, we don't go forward as we should. In 1913, there was a poet by the name of Joyce Kilmer, a man, by the way. He wrote a little ditty a few years before he died and made him famous. People have been repeating this ever since. Very simple, not great poetry. But he said this, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. And we all repeated that somewhere along the line. I think I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. Well, he's, he's, a, he's a tree guy. He, li- he was a tree hugger. He liked trees, right? I like trees. You like trees? Uh, here, here's the last lines of the poem that most people don't know. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. Ah, there you are. By the way, if you don't believe that, make your own tree. Okay? But don't, you've got to start from scratch. No seeds, you know, no, no other compo- You've got to start from scratch. Make your own tree. And as soon as you try to do something like that, as simple as that, you begin to say, you know, God is, maybe, maybe God isn't like me <laughs> after all. Maybe, maybe there's something far more supreme and superior of, in God than in me. Uh, poem, many, good, many people can write poetry. Only God makes a tree. The rest of the psalm starting with, with verse 7, speaks of the greatness of the Word of God. The, the, the picture of nature here, it, nature opens up the curtain to reveal the glory and wonder of God, and then Scripture fills in the details. That's the picture we have here. We don't have time to look too much at this. The, the law of the Lord is perfect, but it's talking about the greatness of Scripture and, and how it under, teaches and makes us understand the things of God. But we'll look at verse 14. After he's all done with this, here is his conclusion. I hope it's yours and mine. He says in verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Once again, we're left gasping. Nature causes us to gasp. The glory, the wonder of God causes our our mouths to hang open. The scriptures, when it details God and his majesty and the need for him and all he's done, leaves us with our mouths hanging open. And all we can really say, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, who am I that you would have saved me? What a superior, marvelous, glorious God. Now let's do one more thing today before we're done. Let's go back to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Everything I've said today, taken from Scripture, you must know. This is not optional stuff. You must know these things. But here's one more thing we'll look at today. You must also know that God exists in a Trinitarian form. And he said, well, that's above my pay grade. 
Uh, it's too close to lunch for me to think about that one. But you need to. Christianity is Trinitarian. We all believe in a Trinity, at least if we've been around Christianity at all. We would, we would mouth that. We might even repeat a creed or two occasionally that says something about his Trinitarian nature. But it's absolutely essential we have some grasp on the fact that he is, he is one God existing in three persons, co-equal and so forth. Let me read the verse and then we'll go back. Verse 19 of Matthew 28. So therefore, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular. You notice that, I'm sure. The singular name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There are not three gods. There's one God. He exists in the form of three persons, the one name. Someone has given this definition, within the one being that is God, there exist eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we baptize people here, and we are having a service soon, if you'd like to be involved in that, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'll baptize you in the name of the Father, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One name, one God, three persons. Co-equal, co-eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, do you understand the Trinity? If you do, please sign up in the back to be in charge of the church. Okay? We want you to take over and explain everything to us. Because there is no person who has ever lived who can really totally comprehend this. And it leaves us with the question, why did God reveal himself clearly, when you study scripture deeply enough, clearly in a Trinitarian form, and yet nobody has ever been able to put a pure, clear understanding on exactly how that works. Now we, we have our creeds, we have our, our statements like I just read, we can mouth it off, but how does that work in the Godhead? The greatest theologian that America has ever produced most people think, is Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the, of the, uh, 18, uh, the Great Awakening in the 1700s. Here's what this man of intelligence that none of us could even imagine getting close to said. I am far from pretending to explain the Trinity so as to render it no longer a mystery. Said, I, I can't explain it where it's not a mystery. I think it to be the highest and deepest of all divine mysteries still, Notwithstanding anything that I've said or conceived about it, I don't intend to explain the Trinity. Well, we understand it as far as God takes us, but we may not understand it. The father of church hymnology is considered to be Isaac Watts. And if you know anything about church history and Isaac Watts, you know he struggled for many years as a pastor with the issue of the Trinity. He was one of these guys who very, very... Uh, brain-oriented, thinking-oriented. He had to understand everything. And he couldn't unravel this mystery of the Trinity. And for a long time, he deeply, deeply struggled with that. Finally, Isaac Watts came to a conclusion, and he wrote it in one of his hymns. He wrote hymns every Sunday for every sermon. Isn't that something? Can you imagine what I would write? Yeah. <laughs> and here's, one of the thing, here's what he said in one of the hymns he wrote for the Trinity. He said, where reason fails with all her powers, their, their faith prevails and love adores. Man, that nailed it. Yeah, I don't get it. 
I can't unravel this mystery and completeness by any stretch of the imagination. But I can adore the God who has revealed himself in this way. And that's Watts' conclusion. Well, there's so much more we could talk about today. Again, we could spend the rest of the year talking about God and all we should know about him. These are just three things that you must know about God. We return to the survey for a moment. Those evangelicals who took the survey said, half of them said that uh, God changes. Here was the question. Does God learn and adapt to various situations? They said, yes, he does. Now, I want you to think about how frightening that is. If God changes, think, think of all, over all these thousands of years and all he has learned from the universe he made and all the interactions he's had with billions of people who have made trillions of decisions that he has interacted with and adjusted to so that he has adapted to all these things so that he has changed along the way. Think how frightening that would be that if God actually changed. I could not think of something more frightening. It would mean that the God that we worship today is nothing like the God of Scripture. Nothing like what we find in Genesis 1 on through. Because he's changed. He's different than he used to be. He's made all these adaptions. We would have no way of knowing even who he is. In Alice in Wonderland stories, Alice goes back down the rabbit hole and the Mad Hatter says to her, you're not the same as you were before. You are much more muchier. You've lost your muchness. Well, that's what happens with people. People change. We're much more muchier than we used to be. But he never does that. He never loses anything. He never gains anything. He never learns anything. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if that doesn't throw your heart, I don't know what would. Growing up, I, I, I did real well. I got along very well with my mother. I only recall two incidences in my teenage years and beyond in which I had conflict with her. Both of those grieve me when I think about them. Uh, both were my fault, but I, of course I didn't think they were then. The one that I remember very uh, emphatically and was thinking about in reference to this, I was probably 20, 21. I'd gone to a couple years of college and a year of Bible college. I pretty much knew everything that the world had to know by then and, uh, and wanted my mother to know that too, probably. But at any rate, we were talking about something that we disagreed on and, and she was trying to show me I was wrong and I certainly wasn't into that. And by then, I was a far better debater than my mother. There was no contest. I could out-argue mom all day long. She had no chance. So finally, uh, as she was trying, she gave up. And she simply looked down and said, Gary, you've changed. Gary, you've changed. And that kind of, of course, I, I disagreed then. But she was right. I'd changed. I'd changed in some ways for the better. And some of the ways not so good, as was the incident of that day. But I was not the same little boy that went to college. Not the same little boy she raised. I had changed over time. And, over, and since then, of course, I've changed so very much. Hopefully, a lot of good things. Some things, maybe not. But I've changed. And so have you. You're not the same person you were last week. You're not the same person you were last year. You're not the same person you married 
when you got married, it's all it's changed. Only God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. And the same God that lives now is the God of Scripture that we go back to and we adore and we walk away in all three of these cases and all every other gasping to even consider the marvels and the wonders and the greatness of this God who is ours. My friends, you must know these things about God. Father, we, we pause before you thanking you for yourself. Lord, we are, we are in awe. We're just gasping. We're flabbergasted. Uh, we, we don't even know how to get in the game sometimes. You are just so much beyond us and so wonderful and so gracious and so loving. Lord, for those of us who do know you or know much about you and have lived for you for some time, we cannot even comprehend what life would be like without you. And our hearts break, our hearts go out. For some that might be here, and I don't even know who they are, you do, who don't know you, who don't love you, you're not part of their lives, they're living as if you don't exist, and they're living the most awful, fearful life imaginable. Oh Lord, break their hearts today. Open them up with truth. Draw them to the great love of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.